Welcome back to the EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. Today we have an extra special guest who is Paul Miller from Bestnell Green Ventures. We have a wide-ranging discussion, including how an accelerator program really works, how different areas are changing their attitudes to procuring from startups, and how companies can be effective as social enterprises. So without any further ado, enjoy this conversation. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Paul Miller, who is CEO at Bethnal Green Ventures. Um, welcome to the podcast, Paul. Thank you very much. Great to be here. We'd like to start with our usual question, which is basically, how did you become an EAS fund manager? <laughs> yeah, it sort of uh, reveals something about your life, doesn't it? How did you become an EAS fund manager? Actually, it's very recent for, for, for us. Um, two years ago. Um, we started Bethnal Green Ventures in 2012 and uh, our first investors were institutional investors, uh, mainly impact investors. Uh, so people like Big Society Capital, Nesta uh, and the Social Tech Trust. And actually we started getting a bit of demand from people who said, well, can I invest in what Bethnal Green Ventures does? And so, and, and there were obviously lots of individuals who were investing in the companies we invest in through EIS and, and SEIS. Uh, so it was sort of due to demand that we started running an SEIS and EIS fund. And we introduced that in 2018. And uh, we're just about to start, uh, we're just about to start raising our third uh, SEIS and EIS fund. And I think perhaps uniquely amongst people I've I've met in this industry, you have a no BE for services <laughs> to startups. So perhaps it might be interesting to give a little bit more of your background about how, well, obviously not achieved it, but in one sense. But well, yes, I have no idea how I achieved it. I have to admit, they, they never tell you. They just they just sort of uh, you just get a letter saying uh, you've been you've been nominated. But um, yeah, I think it was it was great recognition for what we do, which is we've really tried to carve out this area that we call tech for good investing. So we've we've tried to move startup investing uh, to be about the the positive social and environmental impact you can have through technology companies, uh, as well as obviously the returns. We're not, we, we don't compromise on the returns that we seek from the investments we make, but we think that you can have that additional positive social or environmental return as well. And it was, I think it was, you know, the way that we carved out that, that space and called it tech for good and promoted it. And there's, you know, there's quite a few other people have joined that movement along the way. There's a sense that the OBE was recognition for for that 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 growth over the last ten years. Okay, um, we'll maybe return to the tech for good aspect in a minute, but I think it's perhaps worth introducing a little bit about Bethnal Green Ventures because you have a distinctive model. I don't think any individual aspect is unique, but the combination probably is. So if yeah, you could just explain a little bit. Our model is that we love investing really early into companies, which is obviously you know really, really fits with the uh, the SEIS uh, tax relief. You know that's that's all set up to try and encourage investment into early stage businesses. Um, but the way we do that is, is slightly unusual in that um, we sort of do it in batches. So we take roughly speaking ten companies at a time and we put them through this three month program um, accelerator program for tech for good businesses. And they're typically a sort of prototype stage, I would say, in terms of the product or service they're developing. And we give them loads of workshops and advice and mentoring over the course of that 12 weeks, uh, trying to get them to the stage where 
Uh, they've got a product or service that they can launch into the world, that they can get real you know, paying customers for that, um, and hopefully go on to raise further investment as well. Uh, and that that program is a great way for us to achieve a slight economy of scale that makes investing in SEIS businesses more attractive. But it also gives us great due diligence because we choose which of those businesses then we're going to follow on into and which ones we're going to um, um, put more money to work uh, into. And and the fact that we've spent 12 weeks working really closely with them gives us just you know great intelligence and information about those businesses and which ones are likely to succeed in the in the the medium or long term. Yeah. I thought it might be interesting for the listeners to dig a bit deeper into the Accelerator program. I'm pretty sure most listeners have heard of Accelerators and some may have have encountered one or or may know what they do. But I think it would be good to perhaps let probe a little bit detail Uh, can we start by saying what you mean by an accelerator because i think some term we hear a lot and lots of people mean something slightly different each time yeah i think that the words that you hear around are uh, you know incubator accelerator program all these kinds of things the definition if you like of an accelerator is that it should provide investment so it should it should should give uh ventures the the fuel if you like to 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 really start to to accelerate uh for us it's a fixed time period so for us that's 12 weeks other accelerator programs uh, sometimes have have a different time frame and it's very intensive and uh, one of the particular uh, aspects of it is this kind of cohort based the, the peer support element of an accelerator program so the fact that you have 10 ventures all doing it at the same time means that they're able to build relationships with one another and able to support each other on all those aspects of like you know well, how do you fill in this form for HMRC through to actually you know the emotional support around being a founder of a uh, of a business during a difficult time so I guess those are the key elements of an accelerator program or it's it's got a, a fixed time period it provides investment to sort of fuel up that venture but also it has this peer support element this cohort based element uh, that that is really valuable to to early stage companies yeah and I think generally the difference between that and an incubator incubator has often cohabitation but they don't necessarily have everyone it, synchronous in terms of the stages exactly. yeah and and sometimes there's uh with incubators there's often different time frames for different businesses whereas we have a fixed time period so there's a deadline and and usually there would be a demo day you know at the moment it's a bit difficult for us to have a demo day <laughs> where there's sort of 200 people in a room so we're, we're we're trying to work out how to um how to have a an effective demo day just at the moment actually but normally there would be a demo day at the end of an accelerator program as well where those companies that have been part of that accelerator uh show what what they've been working on over the previous three months and those are very attractive to to, to investors because you get to see what's really been going on in, in in those kind of events so for listeners who are listening to this long time after recording we're catching this hopefully the tail end that we're starting to come out of lockdown here yeah. but we're still adjusting to this brave new world and we'll maybe return to that in a few minutes. So you've got a very distinct profile in terms of the, the companies that come in. So you expect them to be more or less at a certain stage. You you talked about prototyping, but I think um, that's also relevant to the types of businesses coming in and what you're actually expecting from them. 
Yeah, sure. So they're, they're all technology businesses. They're mainly software, sometimes hardware as well. But when it's when it's hardware, we're typically looking for some software to be involved as well, to, to because uh, what we're really looking for is businesses that can scale and where there's a network effect by, you know, the more people who use the product or service, the more valuable it gets. That typical uh, technology economics, if you like. When we say prototype stage, uh, it, it could be a prototype that as yet doesn't have any users it could be just something that you know works uh, but but hasn't been used in anger as it were or it could be something that's got uh, maybe you know i don't know a few thousand up to a few thousand users uh, it so could lean be a startup are these things that have a minimum vile product Oh. Yeah, so it's it's usually a minimum viable product, it, but we don't always expect them to already have kind of paying customers, if you like. We're, to, we're, we're, we're happy to invest before uh, there are paying customers. Part of the reason for that is that some of the sectors that we're looking at here, so particularly healthcare, you don't want to put something into the hands of people until you've got it really proven in terms of its efficacy. So so sometimes it's not appropriate for for. Uh, the kind of companies we're backing to actually be using this in in the real world, as it were. They need to be prototyping and, and showing that it works in a very controlled environment. So it's not always that they've got uh, live customers and, and so on. So, yeah, so so it varies depending on sector. But typically, we look at, we want to be able to see that they're, they're able to build something and then iterate that and improve it over the time that they spend with us in, in during the Accelerator program. Yeah. So when do you hope that the companies will get to by the end of the program usually we, we what we really want to do is be able to, to help them build evidence that they're onto some things and the the best evidence for other investors is uh being able to show users using the product and loving it and talk, talking to their you know friends or colleagues about it as well so uh typically we we really like to work with companies to make sure that they're uh, focused on that sort of user-centered design of the product or service. So as they're really building something that people uh, people want and people are, are willing to to share as well. And so if we can get them, help them uh, reach those proof points by the end of the 12 weeks, that's definitely, you know, a really positive thing. We, we also want them to be able to, to explain the impact that they're going to have. Quite often companies come in saying, oh, well, I'm going to uh, solve the mental health crisis you know they have big lofty aims and that's that's great and we we love that sort of ambition but actually the truth is you know you need to have a very specific way that you're going to measure your positive impact and we hope to to take the companies to be able to do that by the end of the program as well so to have a few key metrics that they'll be able to show to other people uh prove that uh, what they're building could have a positive impact as well. So that's that's another as- aspect of what we're doing in the Accelerator program. The most obvious thing to ask is then how do you get them from A to B? You know, what, what, what do you do in the program to actually help facilitate or, or train or bring in knowledge? We're really lucky that we've got a fantastic group of, of mentors who've helped BGV over the years, and they're real experts in everything from that user-centered design through to particular types of technology through to particular sectors. And part of the uh, the program is bringing in those external experts, getting them to talk to these ventures, uh, explain like their ways of doing things, their ways of thinking about these things. Really, I mean, it's, I mean, uh, you know, it's sort of a, a compressed, like sort of uh, course, if you like, in how to how to build a startup. 
and that content the the ventures find super valuable and it covers everything from design through to business models through to impact measurement through to you know pitching to investors all those kinds of topics are all crammed into that that 12-week program but i think it's, it's not just about the content it's then connecting the the teams to mentors both inside our team but also from the the, the mentor network uh, more widely to get one-to-one interaction to be able to talk to somebody about their specific circumstances about what it means for their business as well so that that one-to-one support is also uh, a really valuable part of uh, of the bgv offer and then finally uh, you know we've touched on it already but that peer support like just that having other people to talk to about like what you're trying to do is is so valuable um, and we we try to foster this environment where the, the startups are collaborating not competing you know that they're that they obviously are competing a little bit in terms of that none of them wants to be the one that's sort of left behind as it were but but uh, really they are they're, they're so supportive to one another it's really it's really good to see that and it's it happens every time we watch the startups build this like really uh, nice peer group that becomes something that lasts well beyond the accelerator program one of the things you keep referring to, and I know from previous conversations, an area that you think is really important is this user-centered design aspect of what companies are doing. And clearly, you have this idea that companies coming in typically aren't great at it. Can you perhaps dig a bit even to, into what they get wrong or what they miss and what they need typically need to bring in to make that better? Some, some are great at it. Don't, like, you know, you don't, get, don't get me wrong, but I think... Quite often, when people come in to, to us, they they understand a particular social or environmental problem really well. So, just an example, you find that the companies that we that we work with that are trying to address climate change, for example, they'll know everything there is to know about climate change as a as a big problem or as a national problem and all that kind of thing. But when you get down to what's the individual users' problem, what are they trying to solve? Uh, it's rarer that people have got really deep experience of, of of understanding the individual user need, as it were, uh, that's going to help them contribute to solving the bigger problem. And you've got to you've got to understand both when you're talking about the kind of startups that we're backing. You want to, if it's in healthcare, you've both got to understand whether it's you know sort of childhood obesity. You've got to understand how how that problem manifests itself, but you've also got to understand what's the problem that individual clinicians face in their day-to-day life and that's and if you don't have both you're not going to build a successful business uh, to to try and address that problem and so what we're really trying to encourage all of the founders to do is spend time with the people who need to use the product or service and really understand their lives understand the way that they work and look for those little problems that they can solve for them uh, to provide value in, in in their lives you know i think there's lots of people who want to change the world and we we love that you know? <laughs> but, but but actually to do. change the world with technology you've got to understand the real micro like the, the lives of the people that you're trying to help and that's where the user-centered design comes in and and that's that's why we, we spend so much time focused on it so you talked about interacting with customers presumably you get people who come in with a customer or with a, with a few customers, or if you're lucky, a lot of customers, and they have people that they can sort of go to. If you have somebody who comes in who hasn't really got a customer base yet, how do they get that experience and, and that feedback? I mean, you mentioned in 
the sort of medical area where you don't really want to throw it out there until you, you know there's some sort of, sort of safety or, or efficacy barrier crossed? I, I think it depends on what the what the company's trying to do. Um, just to give you a sort of a rough split, a, about a third of the companies we back are consumer facing. So they 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 deal directly with their customers who who buy the product directly from them. About a third are business to business. So they're actually selling to to other businesses and they're they're their customers. And about a third, uh, the public sector is the customer. Um, so that would be the, you know, selling to the NHS or selling to to uh, to schools or whatever it might be. And in each case, if you want to develop relationships with customers, you do it in a slightly different way. So uh, I think it's probably more straightforward if it's direct to consumer. You can you know, uh, try to recruit people through social media or through uh, or through friends of friends and all those kinds of things, you know, to try and test the, the, the products. When it's business to business, I think increasingly uh, large companies are keen to work with startups in a, in a way that they weren't even five years ago. I think they they recognise that there is real value to, to working with startups. So that's there are more volunteers on that side, um, if you like, for, for to, to be pilot customers and so on. And then on the public sector, that's where our our existing portfolio is really helpful. So we've you know we've we've invested in a, over 100 companies already, and we've got companies that already have relationships with NHS trusts or with universities or whatever it might be. Uh, and so the new companies can get great advice and introductions from our existing portfolio companies about building relationships with with the public sector. And we've we've seen that work really well. And it's getting better as well. We've noticed that actually public sector procurement from startups it's still still really tough. Obviously, it's you know, <laughs> it's um, most most public sector procurement goes to very big companies, um, but an increasing proportion of it does go to to smaller startup companies, uh, as long as it's obviously done in a in a safe and you know a controlled way. But that that's got much better over the last few years. I'm mean, I'm just wondering what has kind of driven that change in terms of I've I've seen the corporates. So the big corporates, a greater awareness of the innovators dilemma type thing, where I think increasingly big corporates understand that it's difficult to do innovation within that that, that big corporate structure. Although some do try and some do manage yeah, it. Definitely. But in the public sector, does it, the culture of innovation is... is weak i i, I get i think I yeah the impression it has been weak i, I mean I, I think there's a lot in that that we, that, you, that we need to unpack some of it has been driven centrally so there's like central government has uh encouraged public sector departments to to innovate if we're honest from 2010 through to recently a lot of that was driven by cost cutting it was you know you, you need to save money perhaps look at technology as a way of, of saving money. That wasn't necessarily a particularly healthy way of going about it, I have to admit. You know, it was, wasn't so much based on like, what's, how do we improve the, uh, the the citizens' experience? It was driven by cost-cutting. But interestingly, actually, I, I think COVID-19 has really accelerated like the public sector uptake of technology. I mean, in healthcare, that's it's most obvious uh, because the NHS has suddenly sort of realised that it needed to find new solutions very quickly, and startups were the best position to do that. So, you know, one of our companies called Doctor Doctor was already doing a lot with the NHS around 
smart appointment systems and uh, the relationship between the NHS and patients. They, but they've, you know, they found that they've uh, the the NHS has been asking them to innovate almost on a sort of weekly basis to try and add new uh, features to, to to their service in a way that just wasn't happening before the crisis. Um, likewise, we've seen it that happening in universities as they've had to adapt very quickly to having a, you know, a remote student body and and looking to startups who maybe are able to offer virtual services, whether that's mental health support, for example, or or collaboration tools for for students. So we've seen demand go up very very quickly from those kind of organisations because it's been forced by the crisis, to be honest. But there's also, I think. Maybe it's a bit of a generational change in the public sector. There's 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 more people who've grown up as digital natives who are now in positions of management uh, in the public sector who are just think it's it's a bit daft that like the public sector isn't making the most of of technology. So I think that's another thing that's that's starting to happen. We're starting to see, uh, yeah, sort of technology native. Um, managers in, in the public sector who who just think it sh- it's obvious that they should be looking for technology solutions to, to the problems that they have. Mm-hmm. And do you think there's a decentralised approach in that? And I think clearly the, the more experimentation you can do, the better. But at the same time, the, I mean, medical records has been of, of this public fiasco, whereas we've gone for this big bang one big system that didn't really work and the public sector from my perspective seems to like that big bang approach and 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 not be careful not be that interested here's a garden we'll nurture lots of little things and see what works yeah it's still a bit of a mixture to be honest so um well just just to give you the 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 contrasting ones i think in healthcare, it does tend to be very centralised um, o- overall. Sometimes that works, but not always. In education, interestingly, it's too distributed. So it, it's down to each school to choose what technology they they use to, you know, what they offer offer to to kids and and so on. And that doesn't work either because it's it's very hard to break into that market because it's so fragmented so you don't get uptake of innovation so you you might get you know one or two schools using something but it doesn't spread well because there isn't that centralized push so those are the two extremes i think the best uh, way of doing things is for is to centrally set kind of standards so to say this is this is what any technology that operates in this area needs to achieve so it needs to work on to this standard uh, and potentially that that includes interoperability so the ability to work with other software that might be purchased and if those those standards are set centrally but then you can have innovation on a local level as long as it complies with those those standards that's that's the ideal and obviously like some countries have have done that very well uh, tends to be smaller countries uh, but in the UK we've got a little bit of that but we could we could definitely do with a lot more well hopefully we'll see more coming so we keep skirting around covid obviously it's having a a dramatic effect on everybody one of the central parts of your accelerator program that you mentioned was everybody effectively sitting together and sharing experiences and that suddenly become a bit harder um how are you adjusting to the challenges yeah uh so lockdown happened a week before our program was due to start uh, or our most recent program accelerator program was due to start we'd sort of i guess you know we we, we'd kind of guessed it was coming so we we had already prepared and 
uh, we just took the whole program online. So we ran all of the workshops using Zoom. All of our external speakers, you know, did that. All our mentoring was done virtually as well through sort of one-to-one sessions online. Uh, and obviously all of the uh, we're, the, the BGV team, there's, there's there's 10 of us in the BGV team, uh, we're, we're all remote as well. It's actually worked out pretty well. You know, it's, 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 it's been different, but it's, it's been okay. The thing that, that's been really difficult though, is that peer support element. So they, you know, we try to, we've encouraged the teams to, to spend time one-to-one talking to each other, but um, there's just not quite that same camaraderie when you, when you've got a, a, a completely virtual cohort. But now, hopefully, as, as lockdown ends, we will be able to get those, you know, get those people together over time, maybe not immediately. But and the other thing I, I think is that, you know, ventures that come through the BGV process, it's not just that 12 weeks. It is a, a lifelong relationship for us in terms of they're, they're part of the BGV uh, community. And so, you know, hopefully as things get back to more normal, we'll be able to onboard those people to the community uh, better face to face over time as well. But um, yeah, no, we've, we, it's been remarkably smooth as a transition, actually. I, I, you know, I think we were a bit worried about it, but we've, we've actually found it's, it's gone okay. And what do you think you've learned from it in terms of how it will affect what you do in the future? We've probably slightly formalized our curriculum because of it, because we haven't had the, the freedom to just sort of change things on the hoof because we've been in the same room to, to work things out. It has forced us to sort of really consider what's important what's not the the other thing we have found is that people get much more tired when they're doing things through zoom or those kind of things so 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 the amount of time that you can take up of people's day in terms of lectures or well not lectures but workshops and so on is reduced so we've had to be much tighter about how we provide uh, the the information to the ventures and that's meant formalizing it a little bit in terms of making sure we've got everything uh, written down and, and that people can look at it after the session all those sorts of things so people we found that people learn slightly differently I guess when it's when it's online compared to face to face so and I think that's a good thing because it means that uh, in the future we'll, we'll be able to be flexible to different learning styles if you like it, it, it in the future as well so that's that's good typically we've We've really wanted people to spend most of their time in London with us during the programme, but it has made us realise that maybe they don't need to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and actually, maybe we could be, uh, it, it could mean that we can uh, support ventures that are from, certainly from other parts of the UK, much more easily than, than we thought we could. We'd always worried that it was would be too much of a drain on them having to travel to and from London really you know pretty often but actually uh, maybe we can in future programs you know they, they could just come down to, to London for specific things but actually we can do uh, you know most of it remotely and that opens up the possibility of us uh, funding more ventures for, from outside uh, you know the, the southeast which is which is really good as well mm-hmm. yeah it, it, it's, it's a tricky balance I would imagine because as you say, even if they're still based outside London and, and you spend most of the time outside London, one of the main benefits is this sitting room get, getting a peer group. And if they're missing out on that, it's still not perfect. You know, I, I don't know how you overcome that. The other thing is we're we're increasing because as we've got developed, we now have communities of BGV startups that are in different parts of the UK. So obviously when we started out, we didn't have, you know, we had just 
uh, one or two companies here and there around the UK. But now there's there's a whole group of um, BGE companies based down in the southwest, and you know they all know each other. So that started to develop. There's certainly a, a good group around uh, Manchester and Northwest as well. So. I think over time we might find that there's sort of BGV communities or BGV portfolio communities develop, and that could be a, a, an answer to some of that. Returning to the tech for good idea, um, mm-hmm. which I think is this really nice phrase, and one of the things that you seem to have done in a way that I haven't really seen in the AI space is create a community around this idea. And I was wondering if you could maybe just sort of Tell us what you've done and perhaps how you went about that. It actually predates um, Bethnal Green Ventures. It really started back in 2008 when I and various other sort of uh, friends and colleagues at the time, we, we started just running these weekend events for people who were interested in using tech for social social purpose. And they were called social innovation camps. And we always noticed that there was just these amazingly talented people turning up to these weekend events where, they, you know, they didn't have to be there. They were they were sort of volunteering to come and work on on, on projects that had a, a positive social impact as well. And we we started a meetup group as well at the same time, uh, which which became known as the, the Tech for Good meetup group. And it started small. They were, you know, the weekend events were I don't know, sort of 40 or 50 people to start off with, but they got bigger and bigger. Um, and the model kept on spreading. And we found that actually people were running them in uh, 25 other countries at one stage, um, these, these social innovation camps. And really, we we layered Bethnal Green Ventures on top of that community, if you like. So this community of people who are interested in using technology for, for good uh, was growing very quickly, and but they they were often after the end of these weekends would say, well, how do I quit my job and work on this full time? And so Bethnal Green Ventures was sort of an answer to that problem. It was you know, well, what do they need in order to do that? Well, they need a little bit of investment. They need some support. They need some connections to networks. And so we designed Bethnal Green Ventures to serve the needs of that growing community of founders who wanted to use uh, their their skills for for good. And that, the meetup group that we started back in 2008 uh, is now nearly 10,000 people in London. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's really growing quite, quite large. There's a, there's a really strong group up in, uh, in Manchester as well and in, the, and in the southwest. I think it's, you know, you, you, you can see that in our portfolio as, as well. And that community of people, um, typically they would be meeting up every month for an evening event. At the moment, those events are online. But they're they're really strong. We run a, a weekly newsletter for the Tech for Good community as well. It's just called called Tech for Good Highlights, uh, which uh, has really really great engagement. And that we get a lot of our deal flow as BGV through that community and through people hearing about us and hearing about the pot the the you know the the ability to get investment for Tech for Good ideas through that community. So uh, the community has been a really valuable thing. And obviously we 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 think it's worth investing in from our point of view, but. Uh, it's given us great uh, access to to brilliant founders and ideas over the years as well. And you also touched on one of the things that um, I, I'm particularly interested in because of my my own volunteering in the past is you mentioned about the the, the challenge for new companies measuring their social impact, which is not a trivial thing for some people. Um, no. So how how do you guide people to, to to find the right measure or or any measure? Yeah. So this is um, 
it's grown so much as a field over the last 10 years this this idea of how do you measure the impact of um of businesses um and it's grown in volume but also in complexity i would say in terms of like all the different frameworks that are available out there most of them are actually addressed at big businesses if we're honest um you know the the, the, the big frameworks and so on are sort of approach to it is is really to try and keep it as simple as possible for startups we don't want them to fail because they're spending too much time and effort measuring a really complex basket of indicators um, that that actually detract from what they're trying to do uh, with the business so for us what we we try to do is try to align their business model with their impact. That's the first principle. So the more of the product or service that they sell, the more positive impact they should have on the world. So therefore, uh, their KPI for their social impact should go up with their revenues. That's that's the idea anyway. So, and if you keep to that, it's amazing actually how simple things can be because it's, it's you know, it, it it means that you don't have trade-offs, which is where a lot of complexity comes from. I think so. If if you if you try to measure the impact of something, uh, but that's not linked necessarily to the the product or service selling more, then you you can end up with trade-offs whereby you you really want to sort of sell more product to make more money, but actually that doesn't necessarily lead to more impact. So that's where the problems can can creep in. So really, our our philosophy is try and align the business model with the impact that they're trying to have and then try and choose very simple metrics that are easy for everybody to understand that can do that. There is an extra layer of complexity, I'd say, though, which is increasingly uh, we're finding uh, investors, and I think it's a good thing, but particularly care about frameworks for measuring impact. And the, the one that's really seems to have caught on is is the UN's sustainable development goals um which is you know a, a framework of uh things that the, the 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 UN says we should try and achieve by 2030 and so we do try and help our companies sort of say okay well this is our indicator but which of the UN's sustainable development goals are you contributing to uh, because you do increasingly find investors and customers who care about those UN sustainable development goals. So we, we do try to help the companies to to align themselves with the UN sustainable development goals as well. Yeah, I know there's very specific targets within those, but in actual fact, there's some very broad headings there that probably most companies you have, they say, well, actually, we're clearly helping the environment or poverty alleviation or health or whatever. Um, yeah so at least the the, the bucket that they're in is is pretty clear yeah and i think that's that's helpful to investors and and to customers to see like oh oh yeah i get it this this is one of the businesses that's aligned with you know sustainable development goal 14 or whatever it might be Uh, it seems that that is becoming a a common way of of thinking about investing in, in businesses yeah and obviously one of the hot topics right now in the news is race in particular but i think in our industry gender is also an issue in terms of there's been a lot of feeling that certain groups of people are really not getting funded the way that they might. And I was wondering how this figures into your thinking. I've always thought that more diverse teams are going to do better. I don't don't quite know. It feels strange to, to us to think about it any other way. We've always tried to back diverse teams more just from a you know we 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 think they do a better job kind of point of view mm-hmm. 
And so when this is, it's, it's actually only really recently that it's become a, a big public issue in the investment, in the sort of startup investment world. So when, when it did start to become an issue, we obviously started to look at our stats and realised that they were a lot better than the technology uh, sort of investment or startup industry average. So, I mean, they're a couple of years ago they were they were absolutely terrible in terms of you know only i think one penny in the in the pound uh, of uk venture investment was going to all female founded teams um in, in the equivalent periods our equivalent was 44 pence do you think having a female obviously your 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 partner managing director um I melanie, yeah. you, melanie you yeah, you yeah. have a female sort of co- co-manager or whatever, which is, there's only a very small proportion of EIS managers have female senior team members. Do you think that affects um, what you do? Well, we're also, we're a majority female company. So I think, I think we're, you know, 60 odd percent of the, of, of all of the, the company, including the, you know, sort of freelancers, board members and so on is female as well. So I'm sure that that influences it, but it, it's more just coming from this point of view of, we just think like, sort of diversity of background, of thought, of improves decision making, but also improves uh, the, the the companies that we back. So we, we've seen outright prejudice amongst some other investors over the years that we've had to challenge where they, you know, particularly around sort of, you know, female founders and maternity leave, those kinds of things. We've seen, some, you know, some some terrible things that that, that that have happened in the tech sector and we've tried to stand up to that at the time as well but to us it's 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 just seemed an obvious approach over the years so we find it slightly strange to to see all the investors who do just continue to back you know all white male founding teams i, I we, it's slightly slightly baffling to me that they, that they still do it yeah, uh, I I do wonder if there's a little bit of opportunity risk in the sense of if these groups are uh, are people not getting funded the way they might, then e- even from an investor's perspective, if there's less demand for them, then you get in at you know the, the perhaps cheaper prices or or there'll be less competition in some sense, and you, yeah, you might get yeah. a better return. It, there's a, there's been a culture of warm intros as well in the venture capital business, whereby um, investors certainly take more seriously introductions they get from people they know. The people they know tend to be people like them, so the people that they're getting introduced to tend to be people like them. So, and that that's been such a um, pervasive kind of uh, approach of the venture capital business over the last, well, probably. Certainly, certainly from before my time, um, and breaking down that culture is really important. And maybe we did have a bit of an advantage in that space as well, in that we, you know, we're, we're not insiders from the venture capital industry. We we came at this as, from outsiders, from growing it on top of this community that that we that we helped to start. So maybe we had a bit of an advantage in that, in that we didn't, we weren't just recreating networks that were already very undiverse. We started from a position of having quite diverse networks as 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 the, the managing partners at Bethnal Green Ventures. So maybe that was a bit of an advantage to us as well, that we didn't, we didn't come from the existing venture capital business. 
I'd like to move on to our kind of standard questions. So I'm going to throw some ideas at you and we'll get some reasonably quick answers out of you. Um, so what was the most recent investment you made and why did you make it? Uh, well, we just we literally just made 10 new ones. Uh, you, you're going to ask <laughs> me to one. name them all. Pick one. <laughs> I will uh, pick one that's uh, just just for no other reason than uh, is the first one that came to mind uh, called Spokesafe, who are building secure uh, bike parking that is uh, accessed through an app. Um, so uh, the idea being that uh, actually one of the things that puts people off cycling is the fact that bikes get nicked. Um, there's quite a lot of evidence that that is a big barrier to changing uh, urban transport patterns. And obviously that has a big impact on CO2 emissions and air pollution. And uh, the team at Spokesafe have already got a secure space uh, set up near Oxford Circus, actually. And they've had such demand as lockdown has started to end from uh, landowners and so on who want to add these secure uh, parking, uh, bike parking spaces. So that's but that's but that's really good. We, we literally just invested. They they finished our accelerator program uh, last week. I think that's a really interesting business. So um, yeah, that's the, the, there's one that we just just did. I have two friends who would love to know about that. In the classic venture capital trio of market products or management, which to you is the most important? So I think when you're talking about tech for good businesses, the management has an extra layer of importance, which is do they passionately care about the problem that they're trying to solve? Uh, because we always want to back founders who are not just great founders and going to be a great management team, but we don't want them to, to pivot away from the problem. It's fine for them to pivot the product and sort of change the way that they address that problem, but we have to believe that they're going to stick with the problem that they that they set out to. Because us as as impact investors, you know, uh, you know, they're not going to change to become a, a sort of an arms company, but that's that's not that's not the not a good thing from from our point of view. So we we it's really important for us that the management team absolutely are committed to the the, the social or environmental problem that they set out to, to solve. Tell us a time about something that went wrong and what did you learn from that experience there's so many things have gone wrong <laughs> <laughs> over the years i mean we we i have to admit we we're perfectly prepared to sort of you know make mistakes um and and then learn from them this this is a, it's a bit of a sad one at the moment we we made several investments about sort of five four or five years ago where we could see that the problems in care homes were getting worse and worse and worse. And we could see that technology could be something that could maybe improve the care sector uh, because a lot of the, the challenges were around sort of logistical and sort of, you know, things that technology can help with. To be honest, none of those worked. We found that actually uh, the, the care sector and the procurement and so on in the care sector was really not suited to the, the kind of sort of startups that, that, that wanted to help. So with hindsight, it, it was sort of a mistake that we that we start that we tried investing quite a lot into into sort of trying to help in the care sector at that time. I think we were just ahead of the maybe a bit ahead of the curve. And, but and now, obviously, I think it's some that COVID has shone a light on just um, some of the real, real issues in the care sector that, that need to be need to be improved. So I hope that actually it things change and there is an appetite to, to try and improve things in the care sector now. But it certainly feels like the fact that we went into that uh, four or five years ago was was a bit of a mistake. Mm -hmm. 
this industry is far from perfect. Um, if you could change one thing, what would you change? Oh, that's a good question. I, um, I, I would change the diversity of the, the managers. Um, I would so I, I think having a much more diverse group of uh, of managers running uh, EIS and SEIS funds would have a really positive impact at the sort of economic and social level in terms of the the kinds of problems that the businesses we we back uh, are addressing. I think if we could if investors into EIS funds and SEIS funds were to insist that they you know that they they backed. Uh, more diverse management teams that would that would have a really positive impact on the industry. In lockdown, and my reading has gone through the roof. Desperate for ideas. <laughs> tell me, t- tell me about a book that you would recommend for people to read. So it's it's actually it's, uh, nothing to do with uh, with technology, uh, but maybe a little bit of sort of romanticism of lockdown. I'm not sure, but um, I read a book called Wilding which is the story of a couple who effectively inherited some land in Sussex and uh, in the 90s, I think, and uh, started trying to farm it, but it didn't really work. And so they decided to let it rewild. Uh, They've done that in an incredibly smart way. And it's the story of the last 20 years of how nature has basically like reclaimed this, this, I've forgotten how many acres uh, in Sussex, it's an incredible story of just how the, the biodiversity there now is is incredible over the space of just 20 years, um, possibly one of the most biodiverse places in, in the United Kingdom. So it's a, it's a very positive story about like how quickly actually you can return things to uh, to a sort of equilibrium um, if you if you're if you're smart about it and you've got the desire to do it. And, and, and although there, I say there is no link to technology, actually one of the things we're interested in is, is tech to try and improve biodiversity uh, because we think that that is going to be a big part of actually addressing climate change is, is finding ways to manage the, the increase of biodiversity rather than trying to just sort of, you know, cut the losses of biodiversity. So, um, yeah, it is, it is an area we're interested in investing in as well. Yeah. I think, I think I've heard the author interviewed on a podcast. Um, I haven't read the book, but... It sounded yeah. like a really interesting story, so yeah, maybe I'll have to get the book now. It, it's it's a great read, um, and uh, yeah, the, it turns out animals do the funniest things um, in terms <laughs> of you know sort of adding to the story as well. So yeah, no, it's really really, really yes. recommend it. As a bit of animal humour always goes down very well. <laughs> what do you wish you knew when you started Methanol Green that you know now? Oh, Maybe it would have been good to know that the the, the market would come our way over time. I don't think we knew that. I think, you know, it felt like we were very on our own when we first started out with the tech for good kind of thesis, as it were, nearly over 10 years ago now. And we always wanted to try and grow it and try and get other people uh, involved in in the space. Uh, But that felt, uh, at times, it felt a bit futile. But now, certainly, you see uh, even quite big investment firms and asset management firms talking about impact investment, talking about tech for good, and that's you know it's, it's sort of gratifying, and I'm I'm glad that the, that everything is moving that way. But uh, certainly, there have been points along our history where we've sort of felt like you know are we are we uh, banging our head against a brick wall with with this? Is it is it ever going to change? But um, it, it does now feel like there is some movement towards impact investment and towards people. Uh, looking at beyond just the the financial returns and and trying to do more than that. 
Yeah, I think it's been a long time coming. I, I first came across the SG 20-odd years ago, and I thought, here's an idea that really should work and should, should be something that should create things that people want. And yet it's never quite happened that way. And even now, uh, I, I think there's there's only a few EIS managers that are overtly ESG in, yeah. in that respect. Yeah, more more and more though, um, and that's that's it, it's really nice actually. We do I do get um, probably an email pretty regularly from somebody who's thinking of starting one or of of, of, of a firm that's you know thinking of of moving into this space. And I think that's great. I, I you know I'd I'd love to see more more EIS managers more focusing on this. So. Yeah, so would I. That would be great. <laughs> I I like I like reviewing these sort of things. <laughs> um, so that's all for today on the podcast. I'd like to thank you, Paul, for coming along and uh, talking about what you do. And um, I think that's been fascinating. Uh, If people want to find out more about you and your newsletter, I think, how how should they do that? Yeah, we've just actually started a new monthly newsletter for investors interested in in tech for good uh, investing. And you can sign up for that on our uh, website at BethnalGreenVentures.com. Great. Okay, I need to do that. You've just reminded me. Um, (laughs) So thank you very much, Paul. I I hope you enjoyed that. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me. So we hope you enjoyed that. If you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at hardmanco.com forward slash podcast. If you really like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at harmonandco.com. Thanks very much for listening and hope to hear from you soon.